I'm experiencing you talking to me about my novel as a rethinking of my own work. And, and unlike almost anything else I do, like I have like some ego attachment to this stuff that I make, but, um, uh, I but envy that like, because whenever I write something, I feel stupid self-promoting because it's like, look at this great thing I did. And I'm like, look at this piece of shit. Oh, my God, please don't. Well, I mean, <laughs> obviously, the, my feeling of it being a piece of shit is probably deeper for my ego attachment than it would be otherwise. But I think that if you can look back on your very best efforts and see the way in which they're the way they failed points ahead like then you're then we have a place to go then we have then we have a direction we can kind of take like you're like like i'm noticing okay i wrote a dystopian novel when i read when i set out to solve the problem of capitalism right and i wrote a dystopia well then that's kind of interesting right like it, it, it you know and i shouldn't just insist that no despite the appearance you know it really still has the promise in the abstract no like i should take note that something about the way in which i was conceiving of the problem at the time led to me writing a dystopia and if we had enacted it it would have done the same like you know like it that's worth noting and if you see your own failures and can think them through deeply then that's uh positive there's a chance for you to you know, not not dogmatically cling to some other answer, but at least take note of how your own thinking, especially the parts that you sort of that that seemed apolitical, like not writing about a working class revolution didn't seem to me like I was making some grand political uh, gesture. But it was just like, hey, that's not how science fiction novels work. That's not how these sorts of novels work. You don't sit the back and write about organ you know organizing the you know sectors of the economy through you know unions or or what have you. you 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 write about an individual facing massive changes in a world beyond them that's how you write a science fiction novel you write about an alien invasion that some individual has to deal with individual society not individuals in society and um so yeah, those kinds of big assumptions that you know are are not just like uh, uh, an individual choice that I made as an author, but that was sort of almost made in advance of me sitting down need to be questioned. And uh, if you if you do the work and you are formed, you know, shaped by your present, and look back and see how the future has unraveled your solutions in the past. And you have, you know, an, op an opportunity to write a better book, to write a different kind of political project. I don't think we're at a dead end. I think it just we have to be brave and self-critical and take our lumps, you know. I've got this section now. It's called Porta Potties or the Seventh Seal. It says, you can bet that nobody on the Jesus is light of the world compound thought that the first real harbinger of the coming rapture would be the arrival of 52 porta potties on a flatbed truck. And probably none of them thought one of the seven seals and revelations would turn out to be the arrival of a universal Wi-Fi. But that's what we've got. 
I just ran a speed test from the Dairy Queen, and it was 37 megabytes per second down and 21.9 megabytes per second up. Not too bad. I'm eating onion rings and sipping the dregs of my chocolate extreme blizzard while the hippest of the saved leave their cabins and cross the green sea of lawn to where anonymous men and women wearing and carrying chroma key suits are waiting for them. The Christians are stripping out of their polyester slacks and trying on lycra, apparently eager to play VR MMO based on the watercolors of William Blake. It's the first game that Bucky has designed all on his own. I guess a lot of people on my newsfeed are excited about it. My newsfeed is actually really weird now. For a while after dad started installing the new OS, I accepted every friend request I got. And now I have 73 friends named Super Mario, 223 friends named Zelda, and all manner of ghosts and frogs on my feed. I have no idea how many of my new friends are really people I already knew. People who have different names, who had different names before. Well, I sometimes think I can tell which one or, or the other of you switches characters and starts a new account. I'm less confident about it every day. Even if you post about changing from Cuber to Grand Theft Auto 5, there's a good chance I won't see it. Facebook's algorithm seems to be purposely weeding out all your posts that reference the notion of anything outside of this. Or posts that let on that there are players who are in some ways the same, even as they switch from a shooter to a platformer. A man in a black suit and a red tie just came out of the cathedral, and he's walking toward the GameCube volunteers. I wonder what game the volunteers are in, or if they do this bureaucratic work as an active induction. Like he's determined to put an end to this. It's probably the minister or somebody. I wonder what's going to happen with this guy. Dad's friends from the NSA are still following me in their van. I just spotted them, or spotted their van anyhow. They are parked just inside the compound, right on the lawn, and the antenna on the roof of their van is pointed right at the Dairy Queen. I wonder what they think you're going to hear me say. Why don't they just follow me on Facebook like everyone else? Uh, our, our mutual friend, Mir Ball, read this book. And he absolutely loved it. And he was like, oh, this is a great novel. This is your, and, and, and he said, you're a right winger. But, but this is a great novel. <laughs> your reaction is clearly a reactionary book against modernity. And I was like, yeah, I know it. I'm solving capitalism in it. But um, yeah, it's neither reactionary nor nor uh, uh, revolutionary. It, it's just a, an accounting of. Well, this is what people say about dystopias, right? That they're essentially right wing because they affirm the present accidentally. But in um, a way, you're kind of saying, well, that present is just an augmented it, our present sorry the future that you created is an augmented version of our present the only thing that's missing is like when there's censorship it's also like how dare you say this bad thing <laughs> and right. that, that's progress too because now we're all nice on right. force of law <laughs> yeah but are we nice i don't think we're nice i had people ask me today on twitter about my sex life in a way that i thought was very intrusive and, and, you know, I brought it on myself in a way, but I don't think people, I think that like the code of civ civility is broken online. I don't think people treat each other very well. Uh, yeah, there's this, um, I mean, it's an obvious observation, but this almost like psychotic, um, you know what it reminds me of? You know, um, uh, what's that uh, Tim Burton movie about Halloween? Oh my God. 
Nightmare Before Christmas? Nightmare Before Christmas. You know that character whose head keeps swiveling around? What's this? What's this? I haven't got a clue. Very strange. Right? Like these people who are demand that you be kind, right? How dare you not be kind? And they'll fucking come at you viciously, viciously. <laughs> How dare you not be kind? And they'll talk about all these progressive things and, and this is just progressive you're just a dinosaur and so on at the same time as making reference to like my body parts you know someone someone was like uh who fills your holes somebody actually said that to me oh and, my god uh, when was yeah, this in what context what what, what the on hell tiktok tiktok someone's like oh on tiktok you? yeah and he was saying like who fills your holes as in who's paying you um, because you can't have any ideas that are against the grain without someone paying you. And I pictured like these kinds of conversations face to face. They would never happen. <laughs> never. And this is this is like a code of civility, obviously, that's that's disappeared. Um, it's just an obvious kind of observation. Um, but this is part of this sort of nightmare world, too, where there's like this facade of kindness that acts as a stick to beat people with. The the idea of it is that um in this future, or, you know, it was really the present. It was like written while Trump was president, you know, that that was a, Trump as a character in the book. Um, he, he gets propositioned on a bus and told to show up at a particular place for a mass, like a flash mob, uh, where everyone's going to have sex with each other. And, um, but when they get there, they keep their headsets on and all these like drones and uh, little computer uh, robots uh, roll around with different vibrating parts to so you don't actually touch anyone. You just press, you know, you just use your glove or your your eyes or whatever to send the machines to go and stimulate whoever you might think you see in your augmented reality world and that was the 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 orgy of equipment that that he witnessed but didn't participate in because he was trying to be faithful to the girl from the Dairy Queen who who had gotten sucked into the augmented reality and who was he was trying to get out of of the augmented reality. Even our most intimate relations are mediated by you know what by the state. What made you think that in this world the state might seek like, to regulate even intimate relations? Yeah, that's the other thing. It's like, well, it, it, um, I don't know, I don't know. I just wrote the scene, but, but the, but I do notice that like the main character's father works for the NSA, and he's the one who's trying to save the world from Donald Trump. In the in the novel. Which who is about to start a nuclear war in Ukraine? And, what do you uh, think that means now? Well, obviously you have to take the novel and turn it on its head, and obviously the uh, the father is more of a threat than the president of the United States in this in this book, uh, and. Uh, yeah, the NSA is not the revolutionary class, okay? It's not the revolutionary subject. It are computer programmers and NSA agents. That That's not who where the revolution is going to come from. Um, and I imagined, I wrote a whole book where it was, and it was very sad. 
and dehumanizing and and funny. I think it was funny. Too. Yeah, that's where, and yet that's where revolutionary change seems to be coming from, from the top down. Yeah, yeah, it's true. That's that. So I'm not. I was. I was. You know, I was a prophet. I am a prophet. You can all, you know, note my name. Put write it down in the book. The other thing about this book is that there's a lot of religious um, talk. I mean, the main character's girlfriend is a part of a right-wing, like, fundamentalist uh, evangelical uh, cult, which, but, which was based somewhat in reality. There's a compound near my house where this right-wing church is, like, chain-link fence, like, like, actually, like, a big iron rot fence with, with, uh, barbed wire on top and then there's these places for people to stay these little cabins beyond the the fence and uh, a giant you know church for do you think that there is a religious revival happening in in your book was there like a religious revival or religions kind of dying the ai replaces god in the book yeah the the religion the the cult the, the the section I wrote was when the porta potties arrived and the cult members all had to join the augmented reality. They were done. Their day as Christians was over and they were taken out and brought into the fold of the new. Do you think the opposite is happening now that kind of as there's as there are these top down revolutionary changes that very few people actually want and are welcoming <laughs> or maybe some people are, some people aren't, but as people try to fight against that fight and, you know, eke out a little space for democracy and Brexit and Trump, and this was just utterly crushed. I feel like there's a turn toward religion. You know, you see like the post-liberal Catholic kind of turn of compact or um, even sort of ideas, some ideas of identity seem to me to be quasi-religious. We see a return of therapy culture in, I feel like there are some aspects of, of, of like the, the language of therapy and self-help and so on that's really easy to question and when people kind of agree. But then there are other aspects of it that have become almost impossible to question. So most people, if I start to question like mental health narratives and I say, look, you're like psychologizing and medicalizing all sorts of problems in unhelpful ways that kind of turn these problems into problems of, of the brain and the subject and the individual as opposed to like broader social issues, um, people kind of say, well, you know, but uh, isn't it good that we're more open to mental health? And I feel like that's kind of the limit. And it, it, it reminds me of a kind of identity and part of a group. Like once you kind of self-diagnose on TikTok, you find yourself part of a group in ways that you can't otherwise in society, that there are very few group identities left. And now it's like, oh, I'm I'm this. I have this label. And now I find this group of people who are just like me, um, as opposed to like being human and therefore having human experiences that are not <laughs> not um, unique. Um, there, we we find a sense of camaraderie in these sort of illness identities. I feel like this is a kind of mysticism as well. Um, I don't know. You seem to have thought that that would end all of that, but I think this sense of powerlessness that we have has led to a, this mysticism and overdrive. Well, I mean, the um, main character in the book uh, falls in love with a girl from Dairy Queen. She's a born-again Christian and a pothead. And she is 
alienated from her church because she realizes that everyone's just pretending to speak in tongues and they're not really divinely inspired. And um, she really wants to know God directly. Uh, she's fascinated with the idea of a world beyond this one. And the AI, because it can or it can it can orchestrate all these different social relations that seem to that make things come together, like the way capitalism makes everything come together to put a commodity on your uh, on your plate uh, through a, 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 a thousand different relations that you don't ever see. The AI can do the same thing, and that gives it kind of a godlike quality. It can also um, uh, understand your personality and predict your future and 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 explain all the people around you um, and predict what they're going to do too. If you if you're tapped into the AI, you know the police can never catch you because you're two, three, four steps ahead of them because you know exactly where everything's going to be, and they have to deal with reality as a chaos and you don't um so she's one of the early adopters of the augmented reality because she gets to be closer to to the ai god so i don't think that the ai technocratic authoritarian uh a, a solution to capitalism is fundamentally different than a retreat back into religion it's not um and so there it's just that one replaced the other you know the old that that's that's all yeah because the idea was the idea is that humanity has been progressing from this idea of like god created man in his own image and then oh wait no man created god in his own image and the next step that humanity's not been able to take is man is god you know that we are the ones who even create ai but we are the ones who create life can bring life to other planets you know through terraforming through our technology and so on that the technology can become so advanced that we become godlike and that our sort of uh primitive ancestors would have seen as godlike we've not think, been able to make that jump and i so think the step, the, i think the step to make is that not man is god but god is man that, that man is god attributes supernatural omnipotent uh, omniscient powers to to man we don't have those powers and neither does god yes that's, that's the point though that's the idea that that's <laughs> where we are we're at I, god is, god is man right can, we, can we, i read an, another little section bring, at random let me but let me say that yeah. we brought god down to earth instead of man up to the heavens you know we we that's the thing that we can't imagine lifting humanity up it's we have to bust everything down We've not been able to to cross that bridge yet. If ever. we can, I, I just would say we can improve, but except to be all, like destroyer gods. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we can improve. Things can get a lot better, but we're not ever going to be God. No, nothing could be. Can I? Can I read you? Uh, I disagree. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, I know. Let, let's. So this is um, a section called Eternity in a Nickel Arcade, and and uh, Matthew Munson. Uh, April 20th, 2017. The reason I won't play along is that I'm allergic to Soylent. Okay. The reason I won't play along isn't that I'm allergic to Soylent, which is that powder stuff, you know, the protein. Uh, it's not because I don't want to wear a chroma key jumpsuit. It's not even that I'm super attached to being me and wouldn't prefer to try out being Sonic the Hedgehog or Ryu for an afternoon or a year. The reason is... Well, it's because of Sally. Sally loved God, 
What she loved was how her religion gave her the opportunity to rearrange the world in her head. She was always imagining her dream house or her dream town. Her religion gave her permission to speculate. It gave her a reason to wonder what the world would be like if every other building were made of glass and whether or not the afterlife would have grocery stores. What sort of life would be good enough to last forever? What kind of gadgets would there be in heaven? What fashions? What sorts of entertainment will there be? That's what her hobby was, figuring that stuff out. But now that video games have taken over everything, she probably doesn't ask those kinds of questions. God is dead, right? Nobody needs religion anymore. And Sally is busy living out worlds of Warcraft, Minecraft, or Donkey Kong. So there, that's the end of that. That was a little section from the novel. So God, the people there believe that God is dead, but all that they've done is projected onto something else. Right, right. The AI, augmented reality, the new, the new old nostalgia. <laughs> yeah, the it's not even new video games. It's like video games from when I was a kid, of course. But uh, you know, which are which were very popular at that moment, like like uh, Ready Player One and nostalgia from the for the early days of video games was all rage at that moment. The second book that you talked about <clears throat> perhaps coming true was uh, After the Saucers Landed. Can you tell me about that book? Yeah. Um, that book was um, about a ufologist, two ufologists. The main character was a younger professor who worked with the main ufologist, Harry Flint. And um, they both had to endure the uh for the, the the reality of ufos like they've been writing about flying saucers and ufos and speculating about about otherworldly powers for decades and then around 1991 uh the the saucers landed on the white house lawn made themselves known and they had to deal with the crummy reality of the actual Space Brothers being amongst us. And that's what the novel is about. It's like coping with Nordic-type aliens running society. And, you know, a, and a lot really of... they really are. I can't believe you figured this out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, David Grush, right? That He came forward and says, they're here. So just the other day. So my my first my my second novel has now also been proven out to be true, um, and I am a prophet yet again. We'll see if this, the Nordic space aliens uh, make themselves known, or if they might be the gray types. Maybe I was wrong there, but uh, yeah, that was the that I would be glad. That would be even more exciting. A lot better actually than the last novel I wrote coming true, which it kind of has. If the the second one came true. That would be really amazing. So, uh, was this imagined as a dystopia or a utopia? Do is this in the tradition of the great socialist literature, in which the we uh, team up with the dolphins and the aliens after a nuclear war? You know, I'm obviously <laughs> no, leading to facadism, the final Marxist tendency, uh, or is it that um, is it another? accidental projection onto something non-human that saves us it, no it no the the um right no the the aliens don't save us and like I, you know one of the things i did in that novel is i was like okay if 
if gender is performative and identity is performative, then the aliens, when they come down, can, uh, you know, there's like the, the old invasion of the body snatchers theme is part of the book. So the aliens come down and they can take on your persona just by wearing your clothes and sort of imitating you. And you can become them through the process because they'll kind of train you on how to behave like they do. Um, so, or you, or they'll come to up to a couple of people on the street and kind of hypnotize them into changing clothes and changing positions. And one person who will go home to the other man's wife and the wife won't notice because he's behaving just the same because personality and identity is all just performative. And so that's, that's an element of the, of the novel is like an alien shows up at one of these ufologists house and starts behaving just the same as his wife. So now he has two wives and he can't tell them apart. I think your novels were kind of working through a moment. Like a lot of us were at the time um, mm -hmm. where big things seem to be happening and you could maybe follow those trends into the future and find something much better or something much worse. And I think what you accidentally maybe without intending to, or maybe intending to, was working through this realization that humanity as the driver of history seemed to have died. So what are our options? And our options weren't good. Right. But you know, I always thought, well, after I wrote Bash Bash Revolution, the next book would be about how the humans inside the machine would reprogram the AI. They would take hold, they would seize the means of production, the new means of production, which wouldn't be capitalist, but would be, you know, technocratic and transform them. So, you know, this, this, this was the creation of, a, of an even greater power of self-organization. It's not just negative. It, it is a greater power of self-organization. Just like capital brings all these people together to create, uh, you know, uh, uh, a mass amounts of commodities and huge amounts of wealth and socializes people. This was a way of socializing people around the world virtually as well and in, in an augmented way. And so if we could program the augmented reality ourselves, we'd be even closer to that, to God, right? I mean, but but I didn't write that book. I only wrote the dystopian version. I only wrote the introduction, the fall into revolution. Um, yeah, so this is my, the novel that I wrote before. So this is Batch, Batch Revolution. This is after the saucers landed. This one got nominated for award for the Philip K. Dick award. I actually think this is a better book, but, um, this one was written and needs, needed one more revision before it went out, but I didn't have, you know, I was under a pressure. It's still, it's, it's, an, it, it, yeah, it's a good book. Alfie Bound likes it. I, I like it. But it's uh, it was difficult, and I I was trying to do this reality bending, identity swapping thing, and I was working through a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of stuff about men and women in this book. Um. Uh. So. And so more... you had this identity of uh, identity. You had this idea of identity as being fluid like what would happen if identity could change in a moment and what kinds of problems were solved or caused by that 
Oh, problems were only caused. I mean, you, as you read along, trying to figure out which which character you're really following and who was who. I mean, like there was two. There was the older ufologist who was a an art of a fluxist artist in the early '60s, and who then, you know, like I told you, Bub Bud Hopkins was an abstract expressionist artist who became a ufologist. So I just pushed that onto another artist who was a fluxist artist in the '60s, a guy named Henry Flint, and I renamed him Harold Flint in the novel, and made Henry Flint, the fluxist anti-artist, into a ufologist and and wrote the novel from there and then there was a second second character who's the main the narrator uh who is his kind of his apprentice or his, his yeah his flunky his his acolyte and the acolyte uh writes about um writes the whole story but by the end of it he realizes he's just a ego projection of the of the older man so he's not even a he's not even his own independent identity. He's like a projection, an identity projection. Um, so yeah, it just identity is not fixed in this book, and 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 uh, yeah, it is a, it is a story, the story of the loss of the human subject. It's just like the unraveling of the human subject throughout by this alien. It starts out as an alien invasion, but then by the end, it's like it's always been going on anyway. Um, the the way in which our Everything's socially constructed. There is no firm foundation. There are no people. Mm. Um, yeah. Do you think this fluidity of identity in the broader culture is a reflection of the loss of the human subject? That it's reflecting a kind of, you know, my favorite quote that I always use, but is, you know, all that is held melts into air. But I'm, I'm alluding to Marshall Berman's uh, book on modernity, where even like what it means to be human, what it means to be, a self, an individual, a f feels very ephemeral. Um, I, I, I think that taking up self-responsibility for your own identity um, is very tricky and that it has to be collective and individual and that right now we push all of the responsibility for uh, our own identity and self-conception onto the individual. And so there's a feeling of insecurity and, and, and lack of foundation. And, and because we can't actually, the one thing we can't alter are the productive social relations in society. We can't alter the political relations in society. We don't have any overall control or way to cooperate to change the, the system or challenge the established authorities. So without that, we're left to, but we're still in kind of a random walk challenge to change our fundamental identity all the time to, to match whatever new crisis rolls along. So um, I think that my novel kind of reflected that uh, feeling, but it is not to say that I think that that is the fundamental uh, truth of our moment. There's a moment in the book where, they're, they're two English professors, like they're two professors of literature. Uh, one's a professor of art, one's a professor, professor of literature. The, the main character is like a short story writer, and, and you know, he's had a little career uh, writing short fiction for publication and teaching. And, and he 
like tries to give a lecture on just the importance of like uh, literature and human cognition and human struggle despite the alien invasion like we still need to read shakespeare we still need to read the great philosophers none of that's gone away this book by the our space brothers is might be a great book but it's no better than you know plato's republic or 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 hegel or marx or or steinbeck or hemingway it that all of these attempts to understand all these white guys of course you know it's me but uh, it's no better than the human struggle to understand our place in the universe that that this history of 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 attempting to take self-responsibility and and uh uh to emancipate ourselves that still is the project despite the guys in the sequin jumpsuits and their you know and the and the blonde uh assistants that they have and the the way they they you know, and the and the flying saucers in the sky and the UFO museums, all of that, and the glitz and the glam, we still have to turn to these books. We still have to to recognize our humanity. There's an element. There's a moment in the book where he gives that lecture, but he's defeated. The he becomes a project. He's only a projection of somebody else's ego. In the end, he's abducted, just like everyone else. Just like in this book, the the main character gets absorbed into the augmented reality because i'm a pessimist that's some that's the way to write beautiful things is to have a sad ending you don't have a happy ending in a, in a serious book can you rescue me from the apathy that i feel creeping into my soul <laughs> where there was this moment you know i've always been a really passionate kind of person and um feel very strongly about what I write about, feel very annoyed by things that I don't like. And I, you know, and I feel this drive and I feel this kind of exhaustion that I thought was just me. And now I see it everywhere. And I, you said you were writing another book. Can you, through the world of ideas alone, <laughs> infuse some energy? Do you feel it like you could write an optimistic book in a kind of pessimistic moment now that can save us all? <laughs> wow. Well, um, the the book i have in mind has to do with a uh a, a man who wakes up in a hotel room to find a, a the woman in bed with him has been murdered and he's not sure if he's done it himself so um that so i don't know is that optimistic um to, to so all i can say is like yeah if you're on the left if you're part of if you think of yourself as someone who's struggling for progress and change and political change, it you have to start looking in the mirror. You have to see in the ways in which you've cooperated with the, with the the state, with the, the with the establishment, with the powers that be, and 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 be critical of all of the of the ways in which you avoid taking responsibility for 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 change and taking responsibility. Uh, to you know, or at least resist the the some of the so-called progress is being made that is in fact very regressive, like the progress of the algorithms that are uh, you know programmed by the Department of Homeland Security to weed out good think from bad think or wrong think. You know, like you 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 have to face up to your own complicity in this moment. Um, 
like just looking at my own books here, I have to face up to the fact that the books I wrote described and they didn't prescribe. I set out to prescribe. All I did was describe. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I optimistic. Uh, uh, can I write a utopian book? Um, maybe the only thing you can do right now, maybe the only thing that we can say is no. Like, yeah, I, I don't, maybe we don't have anything more to say than no right at the moment, right? Right this second um, or this month. But, but you know, I, I don't want to just stay there. I want to, what, what is it called? Negate the negation. You know, I want to get to a positive step, but, but we're too quick to try to get there. I think maybe, what do you think? Well, I just finished writing my second book. And by the time I got to the last chapter, I was so exhausted. <laughs> And I intended to write something uh, optimistic. And my editor had said, you can't just diagnose. You can't just do a whole book diagnosing. You've got to give some hope. And I had always intended to do that for the many years that I had been working on it. I wanted to find a way out. And I wrote a very short final chapter where I thought that I provided a solution, <laughs> um, which was that um, somehow we needed to uh, recognize that all of these things that we think are progressive are just ways of encouraging us to live in a moment that we as humanity have not been able to move beyond. That we can see all these possibilities, all these promises of capitalism, all these promises of liberal society um, unfulfilled. And many people had tried throughout history since the French Revolution to realize them, to realize um, this hope for what a future we knew was possible, but we hadn't been able to reach. And there was always this tension between people who wanted to naturalize the present and say, no, we can't move beyond it because this is just humanity. This is just the way it is. The present is, a, is simply a reflection of our disordered brains or our, um, you know, Malthus, our desire for sex and food that just cancel, cancel each other out. And, and it's always going to be this way. And there were people who were much more optimistic than that and said, no, it's just a, it's a cage we put ourselves in and we just can't find the key yet. <laughs> and I wanted to reinvigorate that, the force of the, of the ladder, of the people who thought that we could find a way, that all we needed to do, you know, there was like a, a future, you know, just beyond the abyss. And there were bridges to that future that some people could cross, that some people do have this kind of freedom in our society that lots of people want. You know, the rich live in a world um, where they can work if they want to and they don't have to, um, where, you know, uh, a world beyond our wildest dream that seems like magic <laughs> to everybody else is just their reality. And all we needed to do was figure out how to build sturdier bridges. <laughs> But instead, it was what we got was people who told us how to feel at home in the abyss, that, you know, that there were all sorts of things that you could do and that the real problem, why you felt you needed to move beyond the present was just a problem inside yourself. And that there's an array of ways and methods that you can use in the comfort of your own bedroom to feel a sense of freedom, even if it's only in your own mind. And I said, no, we need to figure out how to move beyond this. We need, we do need to carry on that quest. We can't forget about it. So I thought this was really optimistic, but perhaps it was too cryptic because when the book went out for review, <laughs> the reviewer said, can't you give us some optimism for the future? 
And I was like, I thought I did. <laughs> a good end to this book would offer a clear way out of the impasse. But that is precisely the issue. The human subject has been questioned, not just ideally, but materially too. In his brief preface to the German ideology, Karl Marx refers tongue-in-cheek to a man who believed the people only drowned because they had convinced themselves of the reality of gravity. They need only be relieved of this superstition, and all danger will dissipate. The persistence of narratives of diminished subjectivity hints at the possibility that what is happening is not just rhetorical. They are narrating a subject that is trapped between past and future. In the absence of a clear means of reconciling what is with what ought to be, these questions have been relocated inward, as problems endemic to human subjects themselves. In other words, part of the reason why many problems have been redefined in subjective terms is because they apparently cannot be solved, at least not within the existing parameters of our economic and social systems. No amount of economic tinkering has ended inequality, nor economic crisis, nor the tendency for large swathes of human potential to go to waste within it all. Therapeutic redefinitions of social problems push issues further into the human mind, where they also can't be solved. However, they can be overseen, and their putative risks pathologized, medicalized, and surveilled. In seeming to underscore the subjective over the objective and bring feeling back into politics, the therapeutic reenchantment of the world that these discourses offer only obscures the highly rationalized forms of domination that they offer. While it is important to denaturalize the vision of the human subject presented in these problem constructions, it is also important to grapple finally with how and whether it is possible to bridge the worlds of is and ought. If not intrinsic to human subjects, from where do seemingly perpetual tensions like inequality, war, crisis, and more emerge. Classical political economy, while undoubtedly deficient in myriad ways, had nonetheless offered the possibility to consider these phenomena from within the proper functioning of the economic system itself. Spurning the neoliberal consensus that locates problems in malfunctioning individuals rather than in a functioning system, whose proper functioning leads to problems, is one potential way forward. At the very least, it is necessary to contest constructions of social problems that take as their point of departure some defect in the human mind. This is because, as I have tried to describe throughout this book, when this is where discussions start, it is also where they end. Interestingly, Marshall Berman, on whom I draw to make sense of some of the underlying impasse that these therapeutic discourses exemplify, makes a strikingly similar statement to John Kabat-Zinn's remark that mindfulness offers an answer to how we can feel at home in our own skin within the maelstrom. To be a modernist, Berman writes, is to make oneself somehow at home in the maelstrom, to make its rhythms one's own, to move within its currents in search of the forms of reality, beauty, of freedom, of justice, that its fervid and perilous flow allows. However, where therapeutic discourses hope to find some breathing space within the flux, Berman wants to feel at home enough in its movement to have the courage to look through the abyss to see what lies beyond. In chapter two, I noted that the fluid nature of the modern world, so well described by Marx and Engels with their phrase, all that is solid melts into air, meant that subjectivity became increasingly historicized rendered dynamic, 
and thrown open. The modern world is still fluid, but we are like Blaise Pascal, trying to find some firm ground in the present only to be dismayed when once again it washes away. As Berman says, our modern world might determine our fate, but the best philosophers have hoped to understand that fate, and once they understood it, to fight it. Right, and they, and they didn't see that in what you had just said. They didn't see it. Yeah, they, I mean, perhaps, I, as I said, perhaps I was too cryptic, perhaps it was too veiled, but that was my intention. Um, or perhaps um, he didn't think that humans could build those bridges. <laughs> perhaps he wanted me to say, yeah, we do have to feel at home in the maelstrom. That's the only option. I don't know. I flipped in this book to just a random section called Cheat Code Bill Murray. And I'm going to read it in, in just a section of it. Okay. When I was young, maybe six or seven, I tried to become invisible. I got the idea after watching the movie Groundhog Day on USA Network. In the movie, Bill Murray is able to rob an armored truck and make off with a leather satchel full of cash because he's living the same day over and over. He knows the future. He can predict where the guards of the armored truck will stand, knows when they'll get distracted, knows the schedule of the traffic that passes between him and the target down to the second. Murray is able to walk right up to the truck and take the bag without anyone noticing him or even seeing him just because he's timed it right. I wanted to be Bill Murray. I, I'd move from room to room, step forward into the doorframe or pass my mother into the kitchen and hope that I would not be seen. I hope to disappear between the seconds, to go unnoticed, to become invisible. But back when I was only six or seven, I was clumsy. Worse, I could only guess, could only pretend that I knew what was going to happen next. So whenever I tried my Bill Murray trick, I would get spotted. In fact, I was more obvious than ever as I moved erratically this way and that, behind a sofa, next to the TV, up the stairs. I stood by a hat rack for maybe 10 minutes, and my mother watched me the whole time, wondering just what was of interest by the raincoats. When I answered Bucky's call, when I put in my earbuds and the sound of a 20th century modem pierced my brain, the Bill Murray trick worked. Even though dad's friends from the NSA were standing right in front of me in the living room, even though they were looking right at me, I could disappear. I had timing on my side. Leaving the house was easy. All I had to do was wait for Greg to start another game of bash, wait for him to swear at Robot Man and ineffectually smash, smash the same button again and again, try the same spinning kick move over and over, even though it never worked, watch as the CPU's Robot Man grabbed his ring champ and sent him flying. All I had to do was wait for Ned to feel uncomfortable and start pacing, moving from the living room to the kitchen and then to the breakfast nook. Then, at the right moment, I received my instruction to stand and move toward the door. I was out on the street, standing to what Bucky informed me was our Honeycrisp apple tree uh, as a Portland police car slowly drove by. Then, following Bucky's instruction, I turned left and walked west down Clickitat Street. Bucky knew everything and could direct my every step keeping an eye on the police, continuing to monitor Ned and Greg, reporting the current temperature and tracking the planes and helicopters overhead. Bucky connected me to the world of organized activity, the world of coordinated movement. Official reports were announced through my earbuds. I could hear the crisis in stereo. What had been a sense of doom, a listless feeling that maybe life wasn't going to work out, became a noise. Bucky fed news feed. Uh, news reports from CNN and Al Jazeera, Russia Today and the BBC, into my right ear, while scrambling my left with police radio broadcasts, microwave beams, and seemingly the thoughts of a Paul Ryan chatbot. My first step 
my first stop was at the Lutz Tavern, but, but Bucky directed me to the olive-colored glass doors of the establishment, moved my hands and feet for me as I made my way past the dudes with ginger beards and denim jackets and sat me down at the bar. When the, bar, when the bartender noticed me and start, stared in my direction, Bucky had me get to my feet again, and I moved to the end of the bar near the restrooms. Once there, I saw my target. There was a Visa debit card from U.S. Bank on the, on the bar, and I was going to take it. When the guy who owned the card leaned forward to look at the girl bartender wearing a purple T-shirt with rolled up sleeves and cut off jean shorts, I did my Bill Murray trick. I stole the, car without be the card without being seen, then turned back and grabbed a small knife from a cutting for cutting limes from a pint glass filled with sudsy water. I was out the back door, out among the smokers by the dumpsters, then between Toyota Corollas, Subarus, and Fords in the parking lot before I fully comprehended what I'd done. So I don't know what that says or if it says anything uh, in this moment. But what I guess what I'd say is that there's a scene where the main character was given a guarantee. He could see the future ahead of him. He could every move was plotted out for him by the machine. He didn't have to worry that his efforts would go wrong. He could steal a Visa card and know he would get away with it. Because he was backed up by all of the established world. Everything was pumped into his ears for him. He didn't have to take any risks. That's the fantasy. That's what people want you to give them at the end of the book. Is that moment where you can pull the Bill Murray trick and, and create the revolution and know you're going to win. But you're not, you don't know you're going to win. You can't tell. You're not going to get... Al Jazeera and the BBC on your side at the start. One of my favorite podcasts that I talk about endlessly that you've done was must have been, boy, 13 years ago. Mm -hmm. You did this podcast called The Stanley Parable, <laughs> which was um, an incredibly beautiful audio montage, I guess, of a video game where people can play it however they want over and over and over again. And mm -hmm. you kind of play out somebody through the parable of this person trying to escape something mm -hmm. uh, without getting killed. You play out over and over and over again, all the different options of how someone might be able to escape the, the sort of prison in, in which they, they find themselves at the start of the game. And every solution that you come to seems unfulfilling. So why is that? Why is every solution unfulfilling? And why does your character's um, escape here feel so unreal, feel so uh, limited? Stanley decided to go to the staff lounge to check on his co-workers. He never functioned well by himself and constantly needed support and guidance from others. So the thought of total solitude was terrifying to him. When Stanley came to a set of two open doors, he entered the door on his left. The innings, I guess, are based on whether you follow the instructions that the narrator gives you? Yeah. So what happens if you follow all the instructions? It tells a pretty predictable story. Yeah. Stanley escapes from the corporation and he shuts down the machine that controls everybody. So you win. You win. So if you follow the instructions of the narrator precisely, you win. Do you win, though? 
Why not? Why do you say you don't win? Maybe, um, you're not really free. As he stepped through the door into the fresh outside air, a feeling of liberation rushed through Stanley's body. He had seen power. He had seen enslavement. And he had destroyed it. The underling was in control now. He had found his leading role. Stanley never discovered why everyone had gone missing, nor how and when he had come under the machine's control. But it didn't upset him terribly, because he knew that this was how things were meant to happen. All he felt was a delight unlike any he had ever known before. Never again would he follow someone else's orders without question. Never again would anyone tell Stanley where to go, what to do, or how to feel. No more bosses. No more instructions on a screen. Stanley decides for himself now. And he stepped out into the world. And he felt the cool breeze upon his skin. And Stanley was happy. Well, by the end of the book, it's a matter of who's who's uh, serving who. The a was he serving the AI, or was the AI was the AI serving him? It turns out he was serving the AI every step of the way. He didn't. He wasn't using the established order to create something new. The established order was using him to maintain what its own power. And um, so, yeah, that's why. This is an unsatisfying ending. And I think in the Stanley parable, I, the conclusion was in order to beat the game, you're going to have to cheat. You're going to have to change the rules. You can't just play by the system as it's set up for you. So, um, yeah. It wasn't even that because I remember that's how I met you. <laughs> I was listening to that podcast. I was like walking as I used to do before kids, long walks, listening to podcasts. And I said to you, I found you on Twitter and I said, what's the solution? And you gave me a solution and it didn't involve playing the game. Right. What, what, what remind me what the solution was. It was like, walk away from the screen. Uh, what, what, what did I say? I forget now. I wish I remembered. Tell me what I said. You said you need to change the game when you're not playing it. You said you had to change it, the game itself from the outside. Right. Yeah. That's the same thing. You have to cheat. You have to change the rules. You can't play the game and this is written for you. You have to take over per, uh, uh, programming, the programming. Uh, and that's, but you know, look, that's my, that was my idea then. And I wrote this book and, but then I didn't have a hacker rewrite capitalism or the working class rewrite capitalism. I had the NSA AI do it. So I guess I didn't take my own advice there but that's yeah what as long to. as you were still playing by the game's rules you were still in the game and you only thought you were being free so we have to figure out how the game works and change it that's right and you know and that's what we i think that we have to give ourselves you and i have to give ourselves credit that's what we've been doing we've been trying to figure out how the game works right to you know with lots of other like at the same time trying to sell books and get more Patreon support and make podcasts and all that. But we've been trying to figure out how the game works. And, you know, that task isn't over. 
just because everything's gotten a little bit worse or maybe a lot worse. Uh, that, that, that we still, that's our task. Don't you yeah, task isn't over. It's just begun. <laughs> that's right. Again. 